Who is Jesus? What is his mission? We're following Jesus as he builds a movement of misfits traveling through Galilee, bringing good news to the ordinary, broken, confused, and undeserving. Who will choose to follow him? How will he react in the face of conflict? What is the good news of God's kingdom really about? Let's pick up where we left off. Well, hi, everyone. Uh, there is a terrifying truth of the Bible. The truth is that it's possible to be religious, even to be spiritual. It's possible to go to church, to go to Bible studies, to take communion, to raise your hands in worship, to know all about Jesus and still miss Jesus. I want you to see two warning passages before we get to today's text in, in Mark. So, so in John 5, 37, Jesus says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, <laughs> yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So, so what's he saying? He's saying, you read the Bible, you memorize passages, you pray prayers, you're deeply devoted to going through all of the religious mechanics, and, and yet you're so busy with those things that when the very one that those scriptures and those prayers are pointing to is standing in front of you, you completely missed me. Now there's a more difficult passage in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Jesus is describing the day of judgment at the end of history, and he says, on that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Did, did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, so these people have quite a, a spiritual resume, prophesying, casting out demons, mighty spiritual works. Anybody in here done all three of those things? Like if you did, you would appear to be a spiritual giant among us. And Jesus would say, I never knew you because you never truly knew me. And so as we turn to our, our passage today in Mark chapter three, here's my big idea. It's that you can keep religious rules and still miss Jesus. Now, you may say, I don't see a whole lot of people these days even trying, like a whole lot of Christians even, really scrambling around trying to keep all of the religious rules. In fact, we seem to have just the opposite problem, you say. People are so willy-nilly in their faith. People are so mamsy-pamsy in following the ways of Jesus that, that legalism doesn't seem to be the leading problem anymore. And so why are we looking so much at legalism in recent weeks? Well, let me give you a few reasons. For one, because that's where we are in Mark. Part of walking through a book of the Bible is that we allow that book to lead us in what we discuss. Second, it's because some of you in here today are considering Christianity. You're watching and you're considering. You're not a Christian yet, but from what you've been exposed to, all you've seen is legalism. Like you see people often hypocritically holding others to a standard that they don't seem to be holding themselves to. My prayer is that you would see and hear today the actual ways of Jesus. But finally, as, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there seems to be a kind of secular legalism emerging in our society. People have drawn very clear lines of certainty 
around political ideologies, social issues, and they hold to these lines with a kind of religious fervor that I haven't seen in my lifetime. And so we now not only have religious legalists, we have secular legalists, we have political legalists, we have abortion legalists, we have southern border legalists, we have Israel and Hamas legalists. And so that if that person's view doesn't line up exactly with my view, I'm gonna have no part of you. And so I think Jesus' approach has an even broader application today than just religious circles. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 3 today. Remember, we're in the middle of five conflict narratives, and today we're looking at the last one, the fifth one. And the interpretive lens that Mark has provided for us is in Mark 2, 21 and 22, that Jesus' ministry, his kingdom, is like a new cloth that can't be sewn onto an old garment because it'll rip it and stretch it. And it's a new wine that will break a brittle old wineskin. And the main point of these conflicts is to demonstrate the stark contrast between Christ's new kingdom and the status quo kingdom of ritualistic religion. And, and we're learning more and more about Jesus' identity with each of these conflicts. And so today, the conflict is going to come to a head. The religious leaders have been following Jesus around. They're disturbed at what they're seeing. I can, I can almost imagine them kind of creeping around at the, the paralytic's house, you know, peeking in the window as he was being lowered through the roof. And, and I imagine them around the corner from Levi's party with the tax collectors and prostitutes. They didn't want to get too close to that one. They didn't want to be seen with the riffraff. Or with their binoculars looking at the, at the grain fields where the disciples are plucking grain on the Sabbath. And so today's events are, are going to push them over the top. This time, Jesus brings the fight to their home turf. Jesus comes to the temple. Now, he's now violating their space. And so for, for them, today is the last straw. This conflict is going to end, you'll see, with, with the Pharisees beginning a serious plot against Jesus' life. And from this point forward, they're, they're looking to corner him, to trap him, ultimately to kill him. And, and he knows, Jesus knows, that the cross is looming. But he also knows that there is more ministry to be done. There, there's the raising up of more leaders to be done. And so he continues teaching and healing and helping and training. But from this moment forward, Jesus conducts his ministry always in the shadow of the cross. So I want you to look at Mark 3, 1 through 6 with me today. It says this, And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. They, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath and so that they might accuse him. And so Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the fifth conflict is, an, is another Sabbath violation. I mentioned last week that the Pharisees had 39 man-made Sabbath rules. And here Jesus was violating one of their laws that said that you may not straighten a deformed body or set a broken limb because to do so was considered work. Which means if you fell out of a tree and broke your arm on a Saturday morning under this system, you would have to wait until Sabbath was over to have a doctor set your arm. Now, did you notice in verse 2 that when Jesus entered the synagogue, the whole motiv motivation of the religious leaders were exposed. Their desire was, do you see it, that they might accuse him. 
This has become their main focus now. But Jesus engages them in a technical rabbinic debate. He's, he's like, so according to your law, should I do good or should I do harm? Should I save a life or should I kill a life? And he asks them a direct question and he gets crickets in response. And their silence is remarkable, really. He comes to their turf and he plays by their rules, this rabbinic debate, and still they refuse to engage in a debate with him. And so we see him having these emotions. Remember we said he's the son of God, but he's also the son of man. He has emotions like us. And he looked at them, it says, with anger. And then... He was grieved at their hardness of heart. This is a picture of the collision of divine justice and divine love. It's a picture we also see in the cross itself, both a symbol of wrath and a symbol of love. Now, hardness of heart that he's responding to here is a phrase that's often used of those that oppose God. Some of you have experienced it yourself. Some of you have seen it in friends and relatives. It's like they know who God is, they've experienced some level of his love and grace, and yet their heart is hard. And they just can't cross the line of faith. And it breaks God's heart when people arrive at this place. He is grieved. But, but he moves from anger and then grief to compassion for this man with the withered hand. And he heals him. And the, par- and the Pharisees responded immediately. And, and did you catch who they went out and conspired with there in verse 6? It says that they held counsel with the Herodians. Now, I always find it helpful to notice who's getting offended by Jesus. The the Pharisees were the ultimate in religious people, and the Herodians, this is ironic, were the ultimate in secular people, non-religious people. And the two of them are teaming up. They're getting together because Jesus deeply offends both of them. And until you realize why Jesus offends both of them, you won't truly understand the gospel. So who were the Herodians? Well, they were the, the loyalists of King Herod. They were the political class. They were the the secular ruling class. Ultimately, they were the ones who killed John the Baptist. So why are these two groups both offended by Jesus? Well, the Herodians are offended because the gospel says that you're a sinner. You're hopelessly lost in your sin. And then they go, well, then why are the religious leaders offended? Don't they agree with that whole sin part? Yes, they do. But, But here's what the gospel also says. It says you can't save yourself by trying your best to follow the rules. You see, the religious leaders believe that if I follow the rules close enough, then God will owe me. And so they're both offended by the gospel because the gospel says, yes, you are a sinner, but trying to keep the rules won't save you either. There's a savior who has come to save you and to set you free from your sin. And apart from him, you are doomed. Apart from him, you are damned. And neither group likes this because it suggests that neither group is in control. They're dependent on something outside themselves for their salvation. And it renders both of these groups powerless without God. And they both like power. But of the two groups, you would think that the religious leaders who were waiting for the Messiah would have recognized Jesus. And so I want to do a little case study here and look at the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. And let's call it Blinded by Narratives, a case study in how to miss Jesus, all right? So I want to look at three different categories, and I want to compare and contrast, see how the legalists handled it and how Jesus handled it. Here's the first category on how to respond when being threatened, okay? So both Jesus and the Pharisees have something that's being threatened in this passage, and they respond very differently. Here's how the legalist responds. It's to conspire against anyone who threatens their beliefs. So someone acts or behaves outside of the lines of what I believe to be true, 
which means then I must go on the attack. I must dismantle, I must silence, I must deplatform, I must destroy. Instead of considering their point of view, instead of considering Jesus' teachings, instead of taking notes on the incredible wonders that he was performing, that, that proved he was God, they went straight to, he must be eliminated. And so just look at the, the evidence of this. It says in, in verse 2 that they were watching Jesus to see if he would heal. They, they, they were like snakes in the grass, lying in wait. They were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And then in verse 6 it says, you know, that they went out and began to plot against him actively. Notice all the scheming in the dark. And, and yet when he actually engaged them in the, the, the broad light of day, when he challenged them to rethink their position, when he said, hey, let's talk this out. Let's have a dialogue, idea against idea. Verse 4 says that they remain silent. The irony is that they thought they were doing good. They thought that they were, as people say these days, on the right side of history. But ironically, they were denying Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath while they were, in fact, conspiring to do evil. They were not on the right side of history. And so we see here how people can be so blinded by their own rules and narratives that they don't realize that they're even in the wrong. So Jesus shows us a different way to respond when being threatened. Jesus says, feel the weight of the threat and then do the right thing anyway. Jesus didn't ignore them. He felt it. He felt anger. He felt grief. But then he ultimately also felt compassion for this man. And I love the, the way and the flair in which Jesus does this miracle. He, he knew his enemies were plotting. He, he could have done the miracle in a dark corner just like they were plotting in a dark corner. Instead, verse 3 tells us, he, that he told the man, come here, which means that wherever the man was, he stood up in front of everyone and he walked over to Jesus. Now he's the center of attention. And then in verse five, Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Jesus made this a very public a miracle. Remember that the hand was withered. And so th this man's attempt to stretch it out would have been feeble at best. It would have been a, a, a sight to see, probably even a little embarrassing but Jesus knows that the ending of the story is a healed hand, a fully functioning arm. And so in front of everyone, Jesus heals him. He doesn't decide whether to move ahead based on popularity polls or personal consequences. He, he knew that this would push the religious leaders over the edge, but he did it anyway because it was the right thing to do. And so I would ask you, how do you respond when you feel as though your ideas are being threatened, when your point of view is being threatened, when your own advancement is threatened or your reputation is threatened, how do you act when doing the right thing is not the popular thing? In your workplace, when you're surrounded by compromise, what does it look like to do the right thing anyway? In your home, when you have to hold your child to, to an unpopular consequence, in school, a group of kids are picking on someone at lunch. Will you risk your reputation? Will, will you feel the weight of it and then do the right thing anyway? The second category is on responding to obvious needs. Again, both Jesus and the legalists have a, a glaring need right in front of them, a crippled man who needs healing. And they both have a choice. How did they handle it? Well, the legalists would say, ignore the need if it doesn't fit the narrative. See, I, I think Jesus' anger at them has to do with the fact that the clergy, that the people who are supposed to represent God to the world, don't share God's heart of compassion for the hurting. 
Jesus is disgusted by, by the dehumanizing effect of ritualistic religion. It turns people into cogs in a wheel, a means to an end. And so Jesus draws this stark contrast. He essentially asks them, are your rules freeing you to do good? Or, or the, are they allowing you to justify evil? Is the narrative you're supporting creating an environment for grace or, or for judgment? Now, by contrast, look at Jesus' response. Jesus would say, you see a need and you respond with compassion. This disabled man had no speaking part in this story. We don't know anything about his past. We don't know about his profession or his position. We don't even know this guy's name. We only know one thing. When Jesus told him to stretch out his hand, he did it. He obeyed. Think about the kind of faith that it took for him to do that, opening himself up to embarrassment and ridicule, maybe worse, excommunication from, from the religious leaders. Certainly, he was in the room. He could sense that there was some tension at this point. But Mark is doing something that, that Mark will continue to do throughout his gospel. He's contrasting the simple faith of a nameless man to the empty religion of the Pharisees. This act of obedience couldn't have been more simple. The encounter goes like this. Stretch out your hand, he stretched it out. Boom, done, healed. <laughs> Mark is showing us one of the first of many ordinary heroes throughout his gospel, using characters who become examples of true faith, simple obedience. But as for our case study, how does one respond to obvious needs? The legalists ignored him because to do anything else would have gone against their Sabbath narrative. Jesus responded with compassion. What about you? If you're on the political left and you see a mega Republican in need, what's your response? Good, they deserve it? Or compassion. On the right, you see a socialist protester in need. Christian, you see a Muslim in need. What will you do when meeting an obvious need right in front of you doesn't fit your narrative? Will you follow the way of a legalist? Will you follow the way of Jesus? Here's the third category on what drives our spiritual lives. And really, this category gets at the heart of the matter. The legal, legalist would say, the goal of religion is external behavior modification. The legalist's goal is to check all the obligatory boxes and make sure he has earned favor with God. And he will use vows and resolutions and his own might and his own effort and his own gritting of teeth to try to get the outside all cleaned up to attend the right services, to perform the right duties, to go to the right, go through the right motions, to give the right money. The, the problem with the behavior modification approach is that it never actually reaches the heart level. In fact, it, it further damages the heart because behavior modification only leads to one of two places and both are bad for the heart. It either leads to despair in its failure or pride in its success. So, so for those who can't manage to keep all the rules, they can't manage to check all the boxes, they are eventually gonna give up in despair and they're gonna go back to living a godless life. But for those who do keep the, role, the rules, who do achieve some success, like the Pharisees, at checking all the boxes, they inevitably end up with a heart of pride that looks down on everyone else who doesn't measure up. And they, they say, well, I pulled it off. Why can't you? My life turned out fine. My kids turned out great. All you have to do is X, Y, and Z like me. And see, the behavior modification approach is damaging. It's, it's kind of like reluctantly driving the speed limit, even though deep down you would like to go a lot faster. I know nothing about this. But, but, it's, but it's limiting yourself to prevent you from doing all the stuff you really want to do. And so the Pharisees, they would used to wear blinders over their eyes in public to prevent them from looking at women lustfully. 
They, they said, I really want to do that, but I'm, I'm going to force myself not to. Man, that is a lot of frustration to live with. A much better approach would be to, to actually transform the desires of the heart. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 23. He said, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You, you blind Pharisees, first, listen, first, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. And so what drives our spiritual lives according to Jesus, Jesus would say the goal of the gospel is internal heart transformation. Ultimately, heart change is gonna affect behavior change because it all flows out of a relationship with Jesus. And, and that's the only way uh, that this change will be sustainable. The legalists were trying to do all of the right things, but Jesus was grieved, notice, at their hardness of heart. He sees their hearts. He knows their true inward condition. This is what makes religious rule-keeping to earn favor with God so laughable. Jesus can see the heart. He knows your heart. And so the question you need to be constantly asking is, is my heart becoming more like Jesus? Because then the behaviors are gonna be transformed. The, the goal then, is a gospel-centered life. And listen, some of you have, have, have given up on even trying with, with kind of a life of faith. Maybe you tried the religious rule-keeping approach before and it didn't work for you. And so you decided just to give up on that and swing back the, the, the other way, just seeking pleasure in the moment. You've probably seen the emptiness of that way too. Like you're sleeping around, you're getting wasted on weekends, you struggle with your anger and rage, you see people in need but you're too selfish to be generous, and you know deep down something is really off with that approach too. The Bible would call this an awareness of sin. Your lifestyle, that, that lifestyle will bring you a pleasure for a moment but you can also feel the emptiness of it all. Like you live with an undefinable ache in your soul that there's, there's gotta be something more. Many of you know this ache well. And you hear about a life with Christ and you imagine it as chains. Lifeless lists, endless rule keeping. But a Christ-centered life, a gospel-centered life will actually free you from the real chains that have bound you and allow you to live your life how you were created to live it in the first place. The problem is, is that you think churches like this and pastors like me are inviting you to religiosity. Like you think that's the only other option that's available. It's either this free-for-all me-ism that you're living or it's a bunch of deadbeat do's and don'ts. But that dead religiosity, let me just encourage you, that, that's the very thing that Jesus is attacking in this text with the Pharisees. So here's the truth. There are not just two categories. There are three. There is hedonism, that's that basic pleasure-seeking. There is legalism, that's that blind rule-keeping. And by the way, Jesus attacks both of those and then he offers a third way. It's, well, let's call it gospel-centered Christianity. And this is what I'd like to ask all of us to consider as we begin to wrap this up today. I wanna get real practical from here to the end and I wanna talk about how then shall we live? What, what does a gospel-centered Christian life really look like? For example, we come to a text like Colossians 3, 5, where Paul is saying, you need to put to death a bunch of things. Put to death sexual immorality and covetousness and anger and lying and obscene talk and anger and, and then put on things like kindness and humility and patience. And, and we're forced to ask, well, how do we live that kind of life without relegating ourselves to, to those legalistic chains that Jesus seems to be pushing back against? So I wanna to present to you some markers 
that, that the Holy Spirit is alive and well in you. This is not a lifeless list of, of, of rules, but more just some questions for self-assessment. We said true and lasting change happens from the inside out, and so this is not a new list to replace your old list of how to earn God's love. These are some ways that the Bible indicates that a changed heart, that, that a gospel-centered life will reveal themselves in real life. So, so I wanna call these six markers of a gospel-centered life and a changing heart. Here's the first marker. It's a passion for Christ. They're spiritual practices born out of love. And so I would just ask it this way. Have you made it a priority to find those things that energize your passion for Christ and then do more of those things and to find those things that weaken your passion for Christ and to remove those things from your life? See, this puts things like spiritual discipline, spiritual practices in their proper perspective. See, now you're not reading the Bible because you have to in order to please God or because you know you want a good luck charm for your day to go well or, or, or because Derek and Scott and Mike and Sarah keep harping on you to find your chair. You're, you're doing it because it stirs up your passion for Christ and it fuels your relationship with him. What is that for you? Is it prayer at night? Is it prayer in the morning? Is it reading your Bible alone? Is it reading your Bible with other people? Is it worshiping in your car on your way to work? Is it meeting with a spiritual friend or mentor for coffee once a week? What are those activities that when you do them, they stir up your affection for Jesus? When you're prioritizing these things, when, when, when you're intentional about them, it's an outside marker that your inside heart is being changed. Here's the second marker. It's ongoing repentance. It's the understanding that you're in need of repentance and it's a marker of a truly converted heart. You're in touch with your sin, you're in touch with your fallenness and your ongoing need for a savior. Now, this is very different than wallowing in your sin. That's not what I'm suggesting. But there's this ongoing sensitivity to what the Holy Spirit is up to in your heart. It's the ability to hear and respond to his voice and then assume a posture of humility when his correction comes to you. Paul sent the believers in Corinth a very difficult letter of correction, and it produced grief in them. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9. He says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. See, when there's no longer any guilt, when there's no longer any remorse for sin in your life, where your conscience has been flatlined, there's a danger sign that your heart has become hard. Or, or it was truly never converted in the first place. And you may say, well, but, but hasn't our sin been forgiven once and for all at the cross? Well, why do we have to maintain a posture of repentance? Yes, that's true. But I think the answer comes in understanding the costliness of grace at the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that the grace of God, while free to you, was immeasurably costly to God. So knowing how much my forgiveness cost him, makes me want to honor and respect him and, and to not in any way abuse that grace. And so when you look at a sin in your life, like you're, you're messing around with porn or you're doing drugs or you're stealing money from your employer, you're holding a grudge against a family member, you take those things seriously because they cost Jesus his life. And, and so while we don't continually beat ourselves up over our sin, we live in this constant state of repentance knowing that our only shot is the costly grace of Jesus. The third marker of a gospel-centered life is spiritual fruit. So, so John says in 1 John 4, 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And one of the main evidences that the spirit is in us is in the expression of the fruits of the spirit. 
Paul describes them as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so one of the ways that we measure the gospel-centered life in us is to ask, are these qualities a reality in my life? And are they increasing in measure? I love the metaphor of fruit, too, because it's, it's very descriptive how, of how obtaining these things actually works. For example, we have a, an apple tree in the front of our house, and this year has been a great year for apples, by the way. I've been peeling like a madman, and Kim has been making all kinds of apple treats. But if you go out and look at that tree, which I do sometimes, the branches of that tree are never struggling or straining to push out apples. <laughs> Their only job is to stay connected to the vine, to stay connected to the trunk, to the roots. The, the, the job of a fruit-producing branch is painfully simple. Stay connected to the vine. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And the goal isn't to clench your fists and say, I'm really straining to be gentle. <laughs> the goal is to stay connected to the Spirit, to stay connected to Jesus. And so ask someone who knows you well and see if you're growing in these things. It's one of the markers that you're living a gospel-centered life. Here's the fourth. It's life-giving words. So in Matthew 12, 34 through 36, Jesus says this. He, he, he drew this very clear connection. He said, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Again, the goal here is not to fall into legalism. It's to have some gauges on the dashboard of your life that register, is your heart full or empty? And what is it full of? And so I would ask, how are your words? Are they filled with life or death? Are they filled with love or hate? Are they used for truth and encouragement and building up? Or are they used for slander and gossip and tearing down? Jesus said the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so if you want to get a gauge of your heart, look at your mouth. The fifth is sacrificial generosity. So just like words, Jesus says clearly again and again that your wallet is a window into your heart. The, 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 the two things are inseparably linked. The Bible says that where your treasure is, your heart will follow. Notice your treasure drives your heart in some ways and not the other way around. And so how do you spend your money? The, the scriptures say that how you spend your money will show you what you really worship and what you really value. And so you can say whatever you want with your mouth and you can know all the right answers with your mind, but your checkbook, <laughs> your credit card statement will reveal whether you're a liar or not. And generosity encompasses more than just money, by the way. Another valuable commodity to us is time. So, so being generous with your time is another marker. It should never replace being generous with your money, by the way. But it too is a measure of the heart and of the gospel-centered life. The final marker that I'll talk about today is biblical community. The concept of a private faith is foreign to the Bible. There is no such thing as a faith that consists of just me, God, and my Bible. Biblical faith has always been worked out in the context of community, of spiritual friendships. And so one of the markers of a gospel-centered life is to ask, do you have a group of people who you are contending for your faith with and, and are contending uh, for yours right back at you? You see, faith gets worked out in community. 
Many of the yous, Y-O-U's, in the New Testament are plural, even though we read them as singular. Most of the books of the New Testament were written to a community, a group of people, to be read collectively and worked out together. For example, take a verse like 1 Corinthians 6, 19. It says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We read that text. We take away things like, well, yeah, it, my body's a temple, so I shouldn't overeat and I shouldn't smoke and I shouldn't get tattoos or whatever you apply there. And, and there's some truth to those things, but, but the you in this verse is actually plural. It's a collective you. It means your group, your body of believers, your biblical community is the temple of the Holy Spirit, housing the very presence of God. And you should be working together and helping one another to avoid sexual immorality and some of those other things that would come against the body. We need each other to live out this Christian walk. Our heart will not change in isolation. The fruits of the Spirit, for example, like love and patience and kindness, they actually require other people to even be lived out. How can you be patient without another person to be patient with? How can you be kind without a person to receive your kindness? And so one of the markers of a gospel-centered life is that you have people around you who are in your corner contending together for your collective faith walk. Now, what's the point of all this today? Well, the point goes back to our big idea, that it's possible to keep religious rules and still miss Jesus. See, he calls us into relationship with him, into simple obedience, into, to, into a gospel-centered life. And then we will begin to reflect these markers that we've been with Jesus. And so here are today's next steps. The theme we saw earlier was this theme of the ordinary hero, the nameless man with a withered hand who shows us what true faith looks like. Jesus told him to do something, reach out your hand. He did it, says he reached it out. Imagine if he hadn't, he would have missed a miracle. And so the discipleship question that goes with our theme today is this. I'd love for you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you on this one. Just ask him, what is my next small step of obedience today, today? Whatever day you're watching, Sunday, whatever day, what's the next small step of obedience today? Where's he calling you to simply and straightforwardly just do what he says? Maybe in a relationship, maybe in your finances, maybe at work, maybe with your family, maybe with how you spend your time, maybe in your spiritual practices. What's your next step? I would love for you to take a moment now and have a conversation with God about that question. Love you guys.